Thanks, Ross. <clears throat> Wonderful. So, uh, for those of you who were here last week, we walked through Genesis 1, chapter 1, through Genesis chapter 22. It took us an hour and a half rushing to just look at four different events. I apologize if it was too rushed. Um, it's not my fault, it's God's fault. <laughs> this Bible is truly this complex. Oh, I was going to have you fix that. You all right with that? <laughs> Do you want to stand up, pop it out, and just untwist it? I think it'd be worth it for the long run for you. Don't worry, it'll remind you of detention in high school after a while. <laughs> well, you're afraid that there wouldn't be any distraction. <laughs> You know, I've been in here a half an hour and I no longer notice it. However, I'm not sitting underneath it. So if you need to move, feel free. Okay. So do the lights all turn on with one? They do. So we would be dark up front and then light in the back. Awesome. So um, it's been a while since I've taught a class. Um, and this is the first time I've ever taught this, and so it's kind of been a bit of a learning process for me, a reminder of better ways to teach. So we're gonna to try to go a little bit slower tonight. Um, instead of looking at four different, uh, four different events, we're gonna look at one, the Exodus. However, that covers an entire book, and another, and another, and another, right? But we're gonna actually cut it in half um, and just look at the physical Exodus itself. We're not gonna get into any of the covenants or um, the temple and sacrificial system. That'll be for next week. So I'm trying to slow it down. Uh, I started with like two pages in my initial thoughts and I ended up with like five and a half. So it's just, it's amazing how beautifully knit together this book really is. And so my encouragement for you is not to just try to absorb everything I'm giving you, because I'm gonna give you my notes and we're gonna talk through it and so you can have it for yourself. So take it home and just start walking through it yourself looking to see what the Spirit shows you, okay? Um, with that in mind, you know, I sent out an email to those of you that were here last week. I'm just curious, what's, is there anything in your mind that you kind of walked away with last week or throughout this week, thinking about who God is, what He did, just anything at all? I'd just love to hear your thoughts if you're willing to share. I think it was really easy to to see the typical God of the New Testament in the Old Testament. It didn't like take a lot of time to really think about it. No. It's there. Yeah. You know, just look at it for like one second and it's, it's very obvious that yeah. it's the same guy. Why do you think it's so obvious? <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's just the very It's the same God, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's just, yeah. Which is kind of an obvious answer, right? Obvious question. But it's so easy for people to miss that. That's, that's wonderful to hear. I think also the Genesis is easier to see a God of the New Testament in it than it might be in Judges or as we walk through the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. This week. Uh -huh. This week it might be hard to see, but next week yeah. it's there. I got thinking about that also, just kind of how we talked about the scope and it's kind of two different styles of writing in the Old Testament and the New Testament, but also that the Old Testament covers such a large time frame. I mean, a huge time frame. 
where most of the New Testament is in compare in comparison very yeah. short. Very so I think we would see a broader view of God's character looking at hundreds and hundreds of years yep. versus the time of the New Testament. So yeah. you know the overall picture, we would see his loving characteristics, but also over that much time, you know, God would need to deal with judgment and wrath, yeah. you know, in different kinds of power. No, that's really good. And the New Testament is comprised mainly of a bunch of commentaries mm -hmm. on like <coughs> three years of time. Yeah. In the Old Testament, we get commentaries kind of with the prophets, but not so much. So you're right. We have to do our own thought process to figure out what God's up to and who he is. Maybe to hitchhike on that too, the Old Testament has a lot of mankind involved. Mm -hmm. But the New Testament has a lot of just focus on God. Yeah. yeah. Mankind screws that up. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, for sure. Yep. Awesome. So, you know, for those of you that were here last week, I just kind of want to do a quick wrap-up of what we saw. Um, you know, we started the whole class with the idea of trying to find out when God ordained his Messiah to come and save humanity from their rebellion against him. Right? Messiah means anointed one, one sanctioned by God to accomplish a specific purpose. And we see that Jesus is referred to as the Messiah or the Christ. Same word, just different languages. And we saw almost right off the bat, Adam and Eve, right after their sin, God promised a Messiah. You know? And we see that, that in the garden he demonstrates his role as their provider and gave them a glimpse of what needed to happen in order for them to be redeemed. Think about the animal being sacrificed so that way they could truly physically be covered, but then also giving them an insight into what sacrifices were and why they needed to happen. And then we see as humanity plummeted into the consequences of their rebellion against their creator, God gave them a tangible understanding of the cost of their choice to reject them and how to be saved. The ark. You know, we looked at how it was potentially large enough to fit all of humanity at that time inside the ark itself, and how it took faith in one man's choice to obey God to be saved from the destruction of all mankind. There's just so much in there that points to Jesus. And then with Abraham, we see that God shows that he is a God that desires to interact with the individual. You can't miss that. Genesis 12, that God, God, the creator of all things, comes face to face with one man that doesn't even know who he is and gives him promises far beyond his wildest dreams. It just requires that he trusts him to move out of the comfortable and into the unknown. And then even in there, the promises, we see that the Messiah himself is mentioned, that he will come and bless all nations. Not just Abraham's descendants, but all nations. So the idea of what does this tell us about God? Um, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts, but just for the sake of time, I'm just going to give you four that I kind of came up with in thinking about this. Wrong way. So one, this is just thinking about, all right, who is God? A God that does not change. The same God that we saw in Jesus is the God that created everything. So in the first 22 chapters, due to his interaction with humanity, we see that one, he desires to redeem his broken creation from their own foolishness. Which is incredible, right? He could have just said, you reject me, go your own way, I'm done with you. But we see that he desires, almost like a heartfelt desire to redeem his broken creation. 
we see that he provides a way for this salvation. Genesis 15, 6. How does Abraham get saved? He believes. Bottom line, how do people get saved? Old Testament or New? They believe that God can save them. Because Abraham had no idea at that moment that Jesus would come or who Jesus would be, but he just said, God, I trust you that you can do this. We see God is directly in control of all of history and is not hindered by time. That one's easy just to gloss over, but if you think about it even a little bit, it's kind of mind-boggling. We talked about it a little bit last week, but the fact that it seems as if God stands back from time and sees it all at once. He's not hindered by time, contained by time. So he understands what's going to happen to you, Evan, in three days, or maybe you're going to meet somebody in a year and a half, or maybe something major is going to happen in five years, and he just understands exactly when it's going to happen. Therefore, he knows how to interact with us at the specific times. That makes sense? So God could have done everything all at once when Adam and Eve left, but he slowly begins to interact with humanity, and he must do that either randomly or on purpose. And it doesn't seem like God's random, so it's like he comes in with the plan at the very precise time. And then one that applies to everybody throughout the Bible, as well as us, he has mankind walk out his faith, her faith, in the unknown. Seems to be a characteristic of God. We see it with the disciples, the apostles, my life, I imagine your life as well. Thoughts or questions about that? I just kind of wanted to give us to somehow package everything we went through last week so that way we can say, man, this is what we see about God. So today we're going to look at um, the Exodus, the God of the Exoduses. Notice that's a little bit different than you normally see it. Anybody know what Exodus is? is? It's plural. <laughs> it's not Exodi, as I was hoping, but it's Exoduses. So he's a god of multiple Exoduses. It's a real word. It is a real word. I had to look it up. <laughs> According to Google, Exoduses is multiple Exodus. Awesome. So as we go through this, what I would hope to do is... As we go this time, instead of at the end, come up with a list of the characteristics that we see of God. So this is what we came up with last week, and then this week I just kind of want to see, I'm guessing they're going to be somewhat similar. Right? But just whenever you have one, please just tell me. I won't even make you get, get out of your seat. I'll write it up here for you. Because the whole idea of this life, in my opinion, is to get to know God, to know our Creator. So Jesus said, the top commandment, love the Lord your God. With all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, everything you got. And so that's why we're going through this. My hope is that we get to know God more and more. Because the Old Testament is a historical <coughs> narrative. It means it actually took place. So God stepped in at the time that he chose to interact in the way that he chose to interact. So we can gain understanding of who he is by this. You know, we have no idea when Adam and Eve existed. You know, people say, 
4000 BC, but it's really arguable whether or not that's true. It's just a long, 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 long time ago. We have no idea how long it was between Adam and Noah. There's 10 generations recorded, but again, if you want to know more about um, why that might not be true, talk to me. But with Abraham, we know it was 1800 BC. But his history was passed down word of mouth. It wasn't until Moses showed up, based on Jewish tradition, he wrote down the entire Pentateuch. So Moses wrote down Genesis and then shows up and lives out Exodus. So we're getting first-hand eyewitness accounts, if that makes sense. So it's really important just to kind of take what we have here as literal truth. Awesome. You know, at some point, um, you just kind of want to, doesn't have to be, not tonight, but maybe when you get home, check out, I was going to do it together as a group, but we don't have time. Check out uh, Psalms 103. Compare it, the way that David describes God, compare that to the way that you would describe God through knowing Jesus. And just remember that he was a thousand years before Jesus even showed up. So how the heck could he understand God the way that we understand through Jesus? Any thoughts on that? How can David see God as compassionate, merciful, full of grace, willing to save those who trust him? We saw in his own life. His own life? Excellent. So God interacting with him. What other ways would he have figured that out? Well, the Holy Spirit was on him. So so, through God himself? Yes. Yep. Taught. It's yeah. good. What other ways? Anybody know what a king was required to handwrite? The law. The law. What is the law? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So David discovered the God that we know in Jesus through studying the law, through his own experience, but the law as well. So if you want 103, it's just really interesting. Of course, he gets into asking God to kill people at the end of it. That's always the warrior mindset, right? But the first 13 verses are far more applicable for us. So. What did you mean by David was required to write the law? I mean, word for word, he was mm-hmm. required to write? Deuteronomy 17. It gives a list of the requirements for a king. Deuteronomy 17. And we may look at that in a couple of weeks. But yeah, 17, verse 14 and on. It says in verse 18, When he has taken the throne of his kingdom, he shall have a copy of this law written for him in the presence of the Levitical priest. I've been told that it can be translated either he writes it or somebody writes it for him. It shall remain with him and he shall read in it all the days of his life so that he may learn to fear the Lord his God. Right? So just to get to know God. Okay. So if you want, um, we're really going to be sticking in Exodus this entire time. So feel free to to turn to Exodus. Exodus is probably, the Exodus is probably one of the best known Bible stories of all. Um, And we're just going to kind of walk through it. And so to do this a little bit differently than last week, just so that way we can hopefully focus in and not be all over the place. I'm simply giving you my, kind of, it's a handout, but they're essentially my notes. Thank you. 
Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to walk through the Exodus itself. The physical Exodus. And in the handout that I gave you, you know, I went through and after each event I put a New Testament verse. I just did this in the last, like 45 minutes before I came here. There are so many verses that correspond with each of these. I just gave you one. And so I don't know if we're going to have time to really go through and read those. Um, more of what I want to do is just to focus on what we learn about God through the physical exodus. But man, I encourage you, uh, one, to go back and read through these and see how God was in 1446 B.C., that's when the exodus took place, or how he was at 30 A.D. with Jesus in his ministry. So 1,500 years difference. Um, and if you want to actually read any of these out as we're going through, um, please just let's, just let me know and we'll stop. So you guys know the Exodus story, right? You do. And it's one that we've either seen movies on, most likely been taught as we were growing up, if you grew up in church at all, to the point where it's almost become cliche, hasn't it? It's just a story, mystical or storybook-like, and we don't really, at least personally, I don't really stop and think about what this represents because it physically happened. You know, for the Israelites, this was the paramount event. More so than Abraham being called or David being king, the Exodus was a time in which Israel became a nation, learned who they were in the sight of God and who God was to them. It's massive. Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, you see the Exodus talked about continually. You read through Acts, Stephen started with the Exodus. Peter started with the Exodus, right? It seems as if, you know, if you look at any historical content, it was Jewish tradition to always start at the beginning before you're getting to your point. And so rabbi after rabbi would always tell the Exodus story. It was a major event. I'm just curious why it was so major and what did we learn out of it. So, how does the story start, Matt? What's up with Israel? Even before Moses, what's up with Israel? Where are they at? In Egypt. How did they get enslaved? Was it due to their own stupidity, some sin that they committed? No. What was the reason? <coughs> Joseph died and they forgot about influence of Joseph. Yep. A new pharaoh that forgot about Joseph, so the wickedness of this world just enslaved them. They're, they live in a broken world, and they came underneath its authority. So let's just read through Exodus 1, 1, 11 through 14. Again, we're looking for who God is. So where do we start? I'm sorry. What verse? 11 through 14. So the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves and put brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down under heavy burdens. 
They forced them to build the cities of Pithom and Ramses as supply centers for the king. But the more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more quickly the Israelites multiplied. The Egyptians soon became alarmed and decided to make their slavery more bitter still. They were ruthless with the Israelites, forcing them to make bricks and mortar and to work long hours in the fields. Thank you. And would you read 22 as well? Then Pharaoh gave them this order to all his people. Throw all the newborn Israelite boys into the Nile River, but you may spare the baby girls. I remember physical history. This actually took place for people, much like you and I, different culture, similar mindsets, similar lifestyle, right? And so imagine being oppressed like that. Um, and we see in chapter 2, verse 1 through 4, that God, I think you can... Uh, imply that, that God saves a specific person. Would somebody read chapter 2, 1 through 4? Now a man from the house of Levi went and took it as his wife, the Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Uh, when she uh, could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with uh, bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed uh, among the reeds placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. And re yeah, what reminds what happened? Who finds him? Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter, right? Yeah. The, the man that rules the entire country, his daughter finds him and basically adopts him. Names him Moses, which means I drew him out. Right? There's so much analogy there. So in verse 3, before we move on, do you notice a word in there that maybe we looked at last week? Pitch. 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 Where do we hear about pitch? On the ark. On the ark. The two places that I know of in the entire Old Testament where the word pitch is used as like a tar that covers a boat. Other places it's used as atonement. Giving up one's life for the sake of another. And so there's just so much connection here. The fact that Moses wrote pitch when he was writing this up is obviously a connection to the ark. So Moses is saved, and we know through Moses, Israelite will be saved. Israel will be saved as well. So this pitch is the same as the one in the... Same, same word. And it means... It means it's just like a tarry substance that you cover a bow with. Yeah, in other places, they use that same Hebrew word to mean, essentially, atonement. Okay. The fact that you give up one thing for the life of another. Awesome. So now we're setting the stage. Now God enters the story. Would somebody read chapter 2, verses 23 through 25? During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned their slavery, shrugged their word, cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went to God. Uh, God heard their groan and remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac. And with Jacob, so God looked on the Israelites and was concerned. All right, historical narrative means that it actually happened in a specific way for a specific reason. What do we learn about God in these three verses? Give me some words that describe him. He doesn't forget. He hears. I don't know if there's a word for it, but he, 
preserves a remnant. Specifically, there's how a does covenant that God made there's a covenant? And what's the other way though? Just look more literally what it says in the verse. How do they get his attention? They ask growing. Because what I've been saying is it's totally true. Remnant theology, people even say, is throughout the entire Bible. But we'll see, what we got to try to figure out is how do you become a part of that remnant, right? In this case, we see there is a covenant that he made to Abraham, and we talked about how Abraham got into that covenant through his faith. There's also this key element of people that desire God's help, saying, God, we need you, we can't do it on our own. All right. So the cry for help comes out, and then God obviously steps in and begins to redeem. Um, this is a little bit longer of a section, but would somebody begin, and I'll probably stop you as we go, but reading chapter 3, verse 1, and we'll go through all the way through verse 12, but you can just start, and if you get tired of talking, you can just stop, somebody else will take over. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why is why the bush is not burned? When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come here. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said to him, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Thank you, Matthew. So I do want to hear what you guys think we see about who God is. Um, but first, I do want to point out, um, this is interpretation, just a theological bent, but usually there's a difference when an angel of the Lord is written about, it can either be the angel of the Lord or an angel of the Lord. Uh, an angel, A-N, tends to happen far more often than the angel of the Lord. And theologians have believed that the angel of the Lord is potentially a Christophany. Jesus himself is showing up. 
So it's kind of interesting to think about. Because Jesus, we can see in the Old Testament, or the New Testament, Jesus has been there from the beginning. He, through him and by him, all things exist. So he's around, um, and we know his role. So it's almost as if he appeared to Moses here. So what do we... The way way I've heard it, and I think it's pretty good, like kind of I explain it, is it's Christ embodied, whereas Jesus Christ is Christ incarnate. Yeah. Just there's, because... That's going to yeah, yeah. Jesus doesn't appear until he becomes like physically embodied, right? Yeah. Because Mary named him Jesus. So it, well, in, in kind of the ancient world, you have just kind of like the, the gods have like a physical form as well. Yeah. Yep. That's good. Either way, it, it isn't exactly entirely human, but it's. Yeah. But it's, it's <coughs> not an angel, it's part of the Trinity. Sure. Right? Yeah, Regardless of how it's shown. Absolutely. Good. So, what do we see about God and his character? Here in the way that he approaches Moses. Can be simple. You know, look for profile things. It's what we're trying to figure out who is God. He's awesome. Explain that a little bit, Wonder. Well, I mean, coming in the form of a burning bush, I mean, it's something that it's mystifying. Yeah. Awe inspiring. Yeah, that's good. Creative. Holy. Yes. What do you mean by holy? Uh, <laughs> well, I agree with you. And, oh, that's our why, why do you think holy from this? Well, because he talked about being on holy ground. I mean, he said, you know, they, yeah. it's like you can't look at him because he's absolutely he's just like perfect. Or, yeah, Moses' reaction to right, it, right? Right. Yeah, that's good. What about relational? You guys seen that at all? Because what could God have done to save his people? <laughs> Sodom and Gomorrah. He had already done it before. But instead he decides to approach them and then explain himself. So he says to Moses, I am this God that you have learned about, the God that hung out with Abraham. Isaac and Jacob, so it gave him a reference. He wanted, it almost seems as if Moses wanted Moses to get to know him. So I have a question. Yeah. If they were in the uh, in Egypt for 400 years, yeah. and I can really appreciate them, many of them falling away and not knowing mm-hmm. who God is, but there obviously is a remnant. Where would Moses have heard about this from his mother? She's talking to him, is she talking to him? Or what, where would he have heard this? It's a great question. So somehow, if Moses is the one that wrote down all of Genesis, he had learned it. The stories had been told to him. And so somehow it stayed alive. And I, I think kind of what everyone was talking about, the remnant theology makes sense. That even though a lot of them may have fallen into believing what the Egyptians believed, that a core stuck to their faith, to what so they believed. Moses' mother became his nurse? Yeah. Is that right? That's right. So did she raise him for the majority of his life? At a certain point, she, he has taken over. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. So age 12, I think, is like the, the Jewish mindset of growing up. So yeah. a, a huge chunk of his life. she was a Levite, yeah. right? So she would have been like of a priestly. That wasn't something. quite in place yet. It wasn't, okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But she would have had time to make an impression. Yeah, that's what I kind of wonder if in his yeah. own he even would go back to visit her. Yeah, I wonder. Because 
this is kind of getting sidetracked a little bit on the Moses and the set of God, but Moses tries to like stand up for his people at a certain point and he kills the Egyptian. So you wonder if he had this idea of like saving his people instead of just being an Egyptian. So you can tell his mindset was different than it could have been because I'm Pharaoh's son, grandson. I can have whatever I want, but he goes another route. Yeah, for, so read. Sure. Let me know if you go into a seizure due to the light. <laughs> you can just 7 through 12. And again, we're looking for who is God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. The land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold the cry of, now behold the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent to you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Thanks, Matt. Got any words to describe God? Responsive. Why do you say that? Um, because he heard the outcry and responded to it. Excellent. Yeah, <laughs> wonderful. Deliverer. Deliverer. Now, did you notice that verb in there? Who's going to come down? <coughs> or that pronoun, I guess? I. 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 I am going to come down. God himself. Persistence. Why do you say that? Because he uh, has a plan, he wants most to be a part of. He said persistent. Uh huh. He kind of puts up with the uh, weakness of man. Yes. Because he wants God, he wants man's involvement. What word we use for that? Have a few coming to the The whole thing is just kind of funny because you know God is just waiting for them to respond. And so Moses kind of writes like God's kind of looking around and all of a sudden, that makes sense? All of a sudden Moses says, there's something going on down here in Egypt. So God looks down, oh yeah. yeah. But that's not the case at all. I mean, God's just, just yeah. waiting and hungry. Like Moses, like, come on, I'm with you now. Yeah. I'm with you now. Absolutely. He, he talks about like in Genesis 15 when uh, he ratifies the covenant with Abraham may walk through the, the animals chopped up. He tells them you're going to be enslaved for 400 years in Egypt. And so it's like he knew well back then that they wouldn't cry out to him for a 400-year period. You know, is that the reason why he didn't save them prior? That they were unwilling to cry out? Or did he have another plan in mind? It's well, if it didn't but. go as far as it <coughs> did, the Exodus wouldn't have been such a monumental event. That's true. In terms of like how oppressed they were. Yeah, in terms of how oppressed they were, in terms of the scope of the number of people, if you think about <coughs> the way their population grew over a 400 year period, yeah. um, it wouldn't be a massive exodus, and yeah. or not to the scale it was. Yeah, that's good. But also back to your point four, 
on the previous slide, he's waiting for us to respond before. Absolutely. He's just waiting for us, like us. He's just waiting for us to yeah. be ready. And, right. jump in. and I think a lot of us in this room probably have stories of hitting rock bottom before we turn to God. Or you know people that have, right? And so it's almost like the same situation. Until things became so bad, they finally said we can't do it on our own. But do they have to wait though? But also maybe just to grow the Jewish pop population because they were in captivity, yep. that they couldn't spread out over the whole area. You know, they just had to stay concentrated. They had nothing else to do, so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you. Don't drink some things, you know. I would, I would also say this passage shows that God is present. Yeah. He says he will come. He says he has seen. Yeah. He's not only heard, uh, like heard them crying out, but he's seen it with his own eyes. Absolutely. He's seen the oppression. Yep. And this, my translation says, I know they're suffering. It says, I know is like almost like a experiential knowledge. Yeah, it's excellent present. I think he also longs for us. Yeah. That's good. Okay. Let's, you know, it's interesting how he reveals himself. I am who I am in verse 14. And I don't know if you have a little sub note, but I am what I am. I will be what I will be. I've also seen I am what I, I am what I was. Just this idea that I am present, that I'm always the same. The God that I was for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, I am for you. If you want to get to know me, see who I am. There's just so much in the way that he reveals himself. Awesome. So we're going to kind of cruise through a bunch of chapters. Um, in order to defeat the enemy, he brings on the plagues. You know, there's really interesting correlations between each of the plagues and Egyptian gods. They had gods that each of those plagues confronted. So it was almost like he was proving, you have all these gods, but I am the god of all gods, because they're not real gods. Um, we're not going to get into that. We're going to go ahead and skip over to chapter 12. This is when the Passover is first instituted. And the reason why it was instituted, tell me, why was the Passover first instituted? What, were, what was the path? What were they passing over? What was he passing over? First, firstborn child, because that yeah. was the death. Yep. The tenth, the tenth plague was the death of all firstborn. So we're talking human animals. Regardless, God was going to take them out. And let's read about how He gives them a way out. It is boys, thank you. Yep, the firstborn son. Somebody want to read uh, chapter 12, 1 and on? I'll stop you if need be. male, a year old male. You may take it from either the sheep or the goats. 
You're to keep it until the 14th day of this month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel will slaughter the animals at twilight. They must take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and lintel of the house where they eat them. They are to eat the meat that night. They should eat it roasted over the fire along with unleavened bread and their bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or cooked in boiling water, but only roasted over fire, its head as well as its legs and inner organs. Do not let any of it remain until morning. You must burn up any part of it that does remain before morning. Here is how you must eat it. You must be dressed for travel, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. You're to eat it in a hurry. It is the Lord's Passover. I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. I am Yahweh. I will execute judgments against the gods of Egypt. The blood on the houses where you are staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, I'll pass over you. No plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. All right. Thank you so much. There's so much in here, right? So much. It's just... I imagine for a lot of you screaming out, man, Jesus, that's what he's saying over and over, it's Jesus. Give me some characteristics that we see of God. They may fall a little bit outside of the ones that we've been so far. Specific about how salvation, how they would be saved? Let's go that route. So, I'm just, how are people saved? In this specific instance, how are people saved? Covering of the blood. Generally, just obedience. Covering the blood. Does it say anywhere in here that they have to belong to a certain nationality in order to do this? Mm -hmm. I was just going to say, God should have been able to figure out who they were, <laughs> but he required them to do something. Yeah, exactly. Excellent. Point. By the time you get to Mount Sinai, there was a mixed multitude of people. And it wasn't just the Hebrews. And so there, there were people that became part of the Hebrews in the sense that they accepted to be under the same covenant. Yeah. We have no idea how many Egyptians left after the country was ransacked be a part of the people whose God did it. So, I mean, yeah. it would just be, a, you know, my assumption that that, that was understood. At that yeah. Period. So, obedience, period. Doesn't matter, not the obedience of the Israelites, it's just obedience. If you are covered by the Lamb, if you obey, salvation. Wouldn't there have been some intermarriage at this point already because Joshua was not a full absolutely. Jewish person? So yeah, absolutely. And there's no, the law hasn't been given yet, so there's no rule against intermarrying certain nations, and even then it's only a certain specific amount. So absolutely, it would have been totally What about more characteristics by God? We see how he saves the people, very specifically. <coughs> Almost like the covering of his judgment. What do you mean covering? Well, it's just, he's consistent in his judgment. He's complete in this judgment, if they were obedient, then they would have lost their firstborn as well. And simply it's just does. Across the board, it's, it's yeah. really justice. Yeah, it's a righteous form of a just judgment.
You know when Jesus was crucified? The Passover. We'll get to all that a little bit later, but it's just so obvious. Awesome. Um, so I do have a note in there. Firstborn signifies a continuation of a man's name, specifically the firstborn son. So the hope for future prosperity was placed upon the firstborn son's shoulders. So you see that with um, Isaac and Esau, right? That battle for that. You see it over and over with Jacob and his boys. It's just by God removing the firstborn, he was taking away a major focus that they had on their future and the hope for that future. There's a, lot, there's a large analogy there, too. All right, so, the please. Thing we talked about before as well. Yeah. At the end of chapter 12, it's kind of suggested that what's happening on earth is also happening in the heavens and that God is judging the powers supportive of uh, Egypt. Yeah. That's good. Well, and it's, I was just thinking of how a lamb again is brought up because God in Genesis taught yeah. them to put the lamb on the altar again. Here it is again. The Lamb of God. Remember, God is very specific in what he says and why he says it. Mm-hmm. It's not random. And I guess on that too, I think he's a God of patterns. And, yeah. I, the other one I see is just this whole, you know, you get the analogy or the uh, parable of the virgins with the oil in, in Jesus' time, where, you know, his, his parable. And yep. At the same time, you have this, you eat when you have your staff and you're, you're ready and you're, you, everything's prepared. Absolutely. And a big reason that was for this time was because they, this was their exodus. Yeah. And a lot of people would, would talk about the end times being the second exodus. So, absolutely. Yep. I think this passage also does a lot to show God's consistency between Old and New Testaments. I hear a lot from people. An assumption is that God um, was exclusive in the Old Testament and very inclusive in the New Testament. Um, and I point to things like this to show that he was not exclusive. You know, if, if you wanted to partake, if you wanted to be obedient, whether you were an Israelite or a foreigner, at the end of chapter 12 it talks about this also. Um, verse 48 says, if a foreigner resides with you and wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover, there you go. every male in his house must be circumcised, and then he may participate, and he will become like a native of the land. Um, wow, God consistently go. makes a way for even those who are outside of his chosen people to become the chosen people. Yeah. Obey, act on your faith, and you're welcomed in as a native. That's awesome. And there is no, I mean, it's like Paul writes in um, Colossians, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and is in all. Yeah, yeah. That's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Nice job noticing that in verse 48 and then connecting it to Colossians all the way around. And you think about who Abraham, how, how was Abraham chosen? It's just by his faith alone. It had nothing to do, so even from the get-go, it had nothing to do with being a part of a certain lineage. Right? It's all based on faith, consistently all the way through. All right, so um, let's jump to the Red Sea. So chapter 14, <clears throat> we... We know the story, but just in case we're feeling a little hazy, Pharaoh allows them to leave. Um, God leads them directly to the Red Sea. Um, That was based on his choice, which is really interesting. They could have gone another way, but God took them there um, in order to demonstrate what he wanted to demonstrate. 
Um, if somebody wants to read in 13, verse 13 and 14, in chapter 14. But Moses told the people, do not be afraid. Just stand still and watch the Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today, will ne- you will never see again. The Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. How good is that, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Who's the one doing the fighting? The Lord. The Lord. Man, just... One way we are saved is by the grace, the divine assistance. Um, And then down 19 and 20, we see the angel of God who was going before the Israelites moved and went behind them. The pillar of cloud moved in from in front of them and took its place behind them. It came between the army of Egypt and the army of Israel. So the cloud was there with the darkness and it lit up the night. One did not come near the other all night. So if the angel of God is Jesus, part of the Trinity embodied, he's standing between the enemy so that way he cannot attack his people. Just so much there. Um, And I got some verses there. Hebrews, how he lives in intercession for us. Um, Job 1, Satan can only do what God allows him to do. And we see the actual event take place. Um, Somebody want to read 21, 22, please? 21, 22. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. Excellent. And then if you wouldn't mind, also reading 26 through 29. And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh, that have followed the Israelites into the sea, not one of them survived. What do we see about God? Our God, same God that we worship right here, right now. What was his character trait in this specific instance? All power. <laughs> Would you say, Matthew? <coughs> Trustworthy. It's crazy to think about it's the same God that we worship. Again, reflective of, of the New Testament in terms of Jesus calling the sea and yes. you know, splits the sea. It's yeah. <coughs> It's called the Exodus motif. We're going to get into it next. Beautiful. Nice job, Melissa. All right, just for the sake of time, so I, I really encourage you, if this is striking a chord with you at all this week, go through and kind of reread these if you want. Um, Song of Moses. That's what they sang after they get through the Red Sea, after Pharaoh is completely defeated. Uh, it's also referenced in Revelation 15. It's kind of crazy. It's like the second exodus. Some people see this. Jesus comes back. It's right there in Revelation. You know? And then we see that God guides his people through the wilderness. Um, manna, you know how Jesus was referenced? Bread of life. Water. He's a spring of living water. There's this whole notion that Moses strikes a rock the first time, water comes out, and then he strikes it the second time, 
So he disobeys God in doing that. It's a major punishment for him. But the reason that God didn't want him to be struck, potentially, was because it was a symbol for Christ. Once the rock is struck once, it doesn't have to be struck again. It's already accomplished what it's supposed to accomplish. If you want the benefits, the water, like the living water, all you have to do is ask for it. That makes sense? Kind of a beautiful analogy there. Um, and then protection against enemies. Um, some stuff in there to talk about Jesus protecting us from enemies. You know, on that second page I gave you, it talks about the covenant. So they were led out of this terrible situation all by the power of God, not just to be saved from that, but in order to enter into this beautiful relationship where he will be their God and they will be his people. They will be set apart, a chosen group. It's just such a beautiful relational God that we see here that doesn't want to just save them to save them, but he wants to save them for a relationship. Um, of course, people reject God, but it's beautiful the way that God deals with them, um, does not let them go. And a big part of this is because of the mediator. Because Moses stands up and says, God, I know you want to lead these people, but don't do it. And God says, changes his mind. Which is really interesting, of course. I have no idea why I said that. Um, and then this will kind of help us with what we're going to look at in a little bit. But the reason God brings them into Canaan is for two reasons. The first one is to bring judgment against seven nations. And this is a, one that people have a lot of trouble with God in the Old Testament. A God that commits like major atrocities and warfare, genocide. Um, it says in Genesis 15, 16, that in 400 years they'd be released from Egypt. They would go into the land of Canaan in order to kill the Amorites because their sins had not yet been complete. So God said 400 years prior to the Israelites entering the promised land that the Amorites' sin was just slowly building up. And there was a certain point 400 years later where he would send his judgment and do that through the Israelites. So it's not that he wiped them out so that Israel could have the land. It's almost like he wiped them out because it was his just judgment against that nation and six others. Does that kind of make sense a little bit? So it was as if Israel was an agent of God carrying out his just his judgment. Um, but we also see that they were to be set apart as a witness to God. Set apart as a witness to God. So if you look at any of the historical context of this time, there was no other God that was presented in the way that God presented himself to, to Israel. All the other gods were appeased by these weird um, traditions um, and the death of children or sex or just all these different manipulations. But God himself, the way that he presented to interact and save them was far different. And like you guys have been saying, he wanted the whole world to understand that they could be a part of this. And so that is, I think, interpretation, but I think that's why God placed them in the land of Canaan. These are trade routes, ancient trade routes. You can see where Jerusalem is at, the land of Israel is this whole bank right here. Everything to the, the east was the desert of Arabia. You know, Alexander the Great tried to march through here with all of his men and elephants and whatever else he had, and only like a quarter survived. So they can't pass through that. And so you can see anybody that wanted to go from what is now Europe or Asia into Egypt or back and forth, where did they have to go? 
straight through a place where God was blessing his people beyond a match and gave an option for anybody to be a part of it. So it's as if he created a platform for them to say, world, come and know the God creator. <clears throat> so beautiful. Oh, man, so much. It's crazy. Just want to keep going. Um, you know, we'll take a little break here um, and go on to another page. But just so it's totally obvious, I did write out my thoughts on the exodus through Jesus, how Jesus provides an exodus. And we're going to kind of look more specifically at that. But um, the, all the verses that I put into the physical exodus um, connect um, entirely to Exodus through Jesus. Any thoughts, characteristics to describe God, the God that we saw through the physical Exodus? He fiercely loves his people. beautiful when you explain, when you start to understand who his people can be, right? Mm-hmm. It's far more than just the lineage of Abraham. You almost want to put it in parentheses, all people. Yeah. His people, his creation, right? Yeah. Regardless of if they turn to him or not, he fiercely loves them. <coughs> awesome. Let's take just a two, three minute break if you need it. Water, bathroom, whatever. <laughs>